Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Really excited to have Dr. Chantal Lewis giving our keynote today. Chantal has done her PhD at Goldsmiths. Mm-hmm. We won't talk about that place. Um, <laughs> we're really excited to have her here. She's uh, just started a postdoc in British Black History yeah, Oxford, at, yeah. at Oxford. Uh, she's also co-director of Leading Roots and is a co-founder and co-host of extremely popular and successful and brilliant podcast, Surviving Society. <laughs> Thank you so much for that introduction. Hello everyone at home as well. So my name is Chantel, most academics listening now, I do qu- wear quite a few professional and personal hats, um, but today I'm mainly going to be talking um, as the co-host and co-founder of the Surviving Society podcast, which is a sociological podcast from a political perspective, which has been running now for about four and a half years. I'm going to use Surviving Society and some personal reflections um, based on my own scholarly trajectory, but also offer a few provocations on intersectionality. I'm actually podcasting this keynote. So listeners and audience members, welcome to another episode of Surviving Society podcast. I'm speaking today for the Intersections Conference at the University of Nottingham, organised by the Political Studies Association Women in Politics Group. Um, alongside the Race, Migration and Intersectionality Group and the Early Careers Network. And it is the 11th of May, 2022. So thank you so much for inviting me to speak today. It's a real honour. I'm not actually an intersectional feminist, so I was slightly surprised to be asked to give this talk. Um, I think I would even consider myself to be quite a vocal critic of some of the ways intersectionality is discussed in UK higher education in particular. This isn't to say I'm not highly energised and inspired by intersectional scholarship um, from people like Anne Phoenix, Patricia Hill Collins, after Brass, I'm obliged to name just a few. Um, and in fact, like these people are essential to my own thinking and tra- trajectory as well as a scholar. So I guess like many people, my critiques, and I think you, the sessions this morning have really um, spoken to some of this stuff. So I'm, apologies in advance if it's a bit repetitive. Um, the session this morning was was really, really brilliant. And some of the provocations that I have, I think, you started to talk about as well. Um, so I guess, like many people, my critiques come from the misapplication of the application of intersectionality. So, for example, many who share a more critical view of the concept perhaps might understand my internal cringe I feel when I'm sitting in meetings or on a Zoom and perhaps we're discussing something and it has absolutely nothing to do with social justice and someone interjects who clearly hasn't read the black feminist roots of the concept. But can we think about this more intersectionally? Um, So the title of my talk today is borrowed from the book Revolutionary Feminisms, which I'm going to hold up now, by Brenna Bandar and Rafif Siada. Um, which is like a little bible to me to be honest the title um, beyond the academic insurance policy is taken from the book and it's it's taken from a conversation between Aftabra, Brenna Bandar and Rafif Ziada and I'm going to just read a little bit from it so Aftabra starts off by saying intersectionality for me first and foremost is about embodiment 
how do we embody social relations? And this is as much about the social, political and cultural as it is about the psychic. It is about subjectivity and it's also about identity. So I talk about intersections throughout cartographies, but I'm talking about it on all, on all these different levels of them. I talk about difference, which is related to intersectionality very closely. Again, as social relation, but also as subjectivity, as identity and as experience. The key thing is that these different axes, race, class, gender, sexuality, disability and so on, intersect both in the physical bodies and the social body. So intersectionality operates both, both at the social level and at the level of this physical body and psyche. I greatly respect the debates that came afterwards and I've learned a lot from them as well, but my own take on intersectionality may be slightly different from the way it is at times, appears and has become valorised. And then Brenner and Rafif say... What do you think its valorization has been about? As I said as well, intersectionality as a concept and a political practice emerges out of discussions around the experience of black American women and working class black American women. And this work is really important, yet there are other discourses where talk about intersectionality has become a mantra now. In reality, intersectionality demands a lot of hard work, analytically, politically, in every way. It's not about mentioning three or four words or saying, yes, I am doing intersectionality. It's really looking at grounded analysis of these different axes. We can't do all the axes at the same time anyway, but it needs a lot of hard work. And then Brenner, absolute legend, comes in and says, one of the effects of this valorization is it has been allowed, to some extent, the continued universalization of a particular woman's experiences. For instance, in a given article, there may be a couple of paragraphs that acknowledge that this issue is different for women of colour or different for working-class women of colour. In this cynical sense, it can almost be used as an insurance policy to guard against the criticism that one is not interrogating analysis, race or class, sorry. Bandai and Ziada's emphasis, and Abtabra as well, on academic insurance policy of intersectionality is what I'm going to try and grapple with. So following in these, the wisdoms of these brilliant and wise women of colour, I'm going to now channel my friend and colleague, um, Jason Arde's method of connecting the scholarship of intersectionality and social justice with song lyrics. Um, I definitely don't have the same eyes or ears as Jason when it comes to connecting academic theory with music and lyrics. But I am instructed by his reasoning for using music in presentations, in articles and books where he argues that music presents opportunities for us to construct ideas about the world. So on the screen now, I have one of my favourite women vocalists, Cher. So with the help of the chorus of Cher's Love and Understanding, I'm going to explore how to address and go beyond insurance policy of intersectionality. So the lyrics are not enough love and understanding. We could use that. I won't sing it. I've got a really bad voice. Um, we can use some love to ease these troubled times. Not enough love and understanding. Why, oh, why? In the immediate aftermath of the renewed global Black Lives Matter movement in June 2020, I had a go at pen in an article to broad coalitions of progressives or many who I, be I truly believe do care about the lives and well-being of the majority and the most marginalised. Um, and the article was titled Retrieving Memories of Dialogical Knowledge Production, COVID-19 and the Global Reawakening to Systemic Racism. In it, I tried to channel some of my daily reasonings with friends and colleagues at Leading Roots, such as Paulette Williams and Jason Arde. And my collaborators on the Surviving Society podcast, Tiso Regis and Georgia Foriado. And of course, I also included um, feminists central to my own intellectual projects like Patricia Hill Collins, Bell Hooks, Lisa Palmer, and race critical scholars like 
allowed a Lenten as well. And this is just to name a few people that I try to learn from in this reflective piece. Um, and although I didn't use any lyrics this time, when I read back on what I wrote two years ago, I feel that um, it was a high, it was at the height of a, a really huge movement, obviously for Black Lives, um, and it was my kind of attempt to channel or belt out onto text that there is not enough love and understanding between those of us who broadly agree on most things. Um, so thinking about this in relation to the application of intersectionality, this was me having a go at contributing to explanations of perhaps why some people who experience the varying axes of structural inequality might not be up for what could be deemed as utopian visions of uncontested solidarities. But crucially... What I wanted to say was that this doesn't mean that we don't still have to take these people with us. So just to be clear, I could see black people reject what was perhaps white people's attempt at reparative dialogues, which I think a lot of the time came from a place of goodwill, but were often delivered in ways which were unfortunately inappropriate, reactive and very individualised. But as we have seen in what Tiso, George and I call the white lash, um, lots of black people spent this period of time or post um, June 2020, confused and disorientated by why our local supermarkets or dry cleaners were now telling us that black lives really did matter. So with the help of Patricia Hill Collins, I was thinking about how to talk with these conflicting attempts at reparative dialogues. The key word here is dialogue. I want to say that that word and that practice, although it's important, doesn't even get us halfway towards the materiality of reparative justice. So the article concludes, as I think about personally and professionally, my role in all this stuff, and I say it is a role that I do not believe everyone should have to negotiate, particularly member, members of oppressed and marginalised groups. But it requires an active appreciation that many of the people who voted against equity for all will still be needed in the fight for emancipatory freedoms. Now, I'm really not in the habit of quoting myself, and maybe because I haven't been working that much recently, so I haven't got as much um, <laughs> things going on in my head, but um, not very in my head. But um, please do stay with me on this because I'm going to use this reflection to grapple with my intention to be both loving and understanding, um, whilst demonstrating that this intention itself doesn't stop me from being complicit in harm, which disables us from truly being able to apply an intersectional framework to social justice. I'm talking about something I wrote a couple of years ago to highlight that I've been part of many groups who have scrambled to make sense of what is occurring and what we need to do. I see myself as part of many groups of well-meaning people who want to provide solutions, answers and possibilities for social justice. But I don't think that many, many of us well people, but I don't, I don't think many of us well meaning people got it right. Um, and this isn't to say that BLM hasn't had an impact. It has. But the structural white lash is taking full effect and many of us are feeling pretty disarmed and dis disorientated. So part of my kind of very, very, very small contribution to these matters has been by co-hosting the Sociological and Political Podcast of Iron Society. And on the show, we really try our hardest to be assertive, empathetic, understanding of our broad coalitions and how we make sense of political calamities. We use the show to censor political conversations about the local and global politics of race and class. We interview academics, activists and community organisers. And something I say maybe on every episode is that we can be loving or demonstrate love in the political sense without 
engaging in liberalism and apathy. So, of course, like this, these things are all inspired by and written by one of my favourite feminist heroes, Bell Hooks. But something I've been thinking about more recently is how my engagement with this process of trying to demonstrate love whilst being resistant to apathy is that this process, this way of being, this practice is very incomplete. Of course, as Bell Hooks reminds us, we have to be willing to explore and make clear that we ourselves can become complicit in harm. So thinking about the urgent political calamities that I was just referring to, um, that we are now living through, what is love and understanding when the brutality of harm is so evident? And how do we think about this in the context of hierarchies of harm and power, which intersectionality so poignantly reminds us to address? I don't think we go as far as doing intersectionality on the podcast, but I do think we make a solid attempt at doing black feminist praxis, which makes me think that perhaps the way to resist the academic insurance policy is to centralise the doing alongside the analysis, but through a constant process of reflexivity. If I'm choosing to invoke intersectionality in the board meeting, in the Zoom meeting, at the conference... Am I invoking it within its roots of the Combahay River Collective, of Deborah King's multiple jeopardy and multiple consciousness, of Crenshaw's critical race and legal frame of the, of the concept? How does what I'm trying to say tangibly relate to social justice rather than me simply saying I'm the most oppressed? I think one of the issues we have in our dialogical knowledge production of the language of social justice is our inability to carefully think about the people we are looking to advocate for, keeping the structures of white supremacy, capitalism and patriarchy at the forefront, but crucially not becoming completely desensitised or neglectful of the importance of of social reproduction or how we relate to and treat each other. So there's lots of reasons why we've had the space to do Survive in Society, uh, myself, Tisa and George, in the way that we have uh, for nearly five years now. And two key reasons relate to me, as in Chantel, um, transitioning into a much more economically middle-class status. I also am pretty high-functioning, um, ADHD. But something we have definitely learned, and I'm saying that because it's a privilege to do surviving society, like as an academic, the fact that I get to talk to academics about stuff that I'm passionate about, interested about on a weekly basis is very, 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 very lucky, and that's, um, it's not lost on me. But Something that we have definitely learned the hard way is that creating and producing in this way, in the context of the extractive academy, leaves you completely open to the sharp end of these desensitised human interactions, hypermarketization, and unfortunately some bad behaviours. Now, none of this, all these processes come from a place of malice. I do recognise that. I don't really believe in individualised evil or anything like that but it does actually represent micro-representations of the consequences of hyper-capitalist, hyper-consumerist, extractive society and sector that we work in. And we do, me, Tiso and George in particular, talking about the Swine Society, have to take responsibility for our roles in in this and recognising that being on the sharp end of these processes um, happened to us um, because of something that we've created that becomes popular and there's a need to consume it um so how do you work backwards to to how we end up in this situation where you try and produce something and create something that is that is trying to do something reparative but then becomes extractive um and i think it is about 
constant process of reflexivity, but also recognising our roles in these cultures and that we're still part of it. We need to actively address what we do and how we relate as something which is both within and beyond the worker and employer relationship, but also as representing micro-social processes which are still at risk of generating toxic cultures, even if we feel we're on the correct side of union politics. Perhaps we can find more imaginative ways to work towards more freedoms and in more simple terms find ways to treat each other better or being more loving and understanding. If you listen to Surviving Society, there's actually an episode coming out next week where I address this matter in more detail. But more recently, I suffered quite a significant family bereavement, and I actually haven't been able to work or produce in the way that I would usually since about, since November uh, 2021. Um, I don't want to talk about this in detail, um, Going through this process made me realise, um, or made, I had learned some harsh lessons about the aforementioned bad behaviours in relation to how some people engage with the podcast. So even when I made it clear that we as a collective were under pressure, it, people would still ask us when we would be back recording. They'd chase us for dates about coming on the show. They'd chase me for stats about their own episodes, um, which we don't release, by the way, like Netflix. Um, <laughs> This is obviously a deeply personal and individualised take on how our society can reproduce some pretty terrible behaviours. And I'm not about to suggest that making surviving society, I am or was in some way deserving of this treatment. But I do want to suggest that it does make sense that this would happen. And I do actually understand why it happens and have some provocations on it, of course. So how have we made what we do on surviving society as possibly an academic insurance policy, as what uh, um, Brenna says about intersectionality? Or is it that surviving society can lose its political and loving roots by simply being popular through our efforts to market the show to wider publics? So we need to take responsibility of how people see a consumption of scholarship or knowledge production as something that doesn't contain humans on the other side of it. The process of counting or the process of ticking boxes that present us as doing or saying the right thing or thinking intersectionally hasn't done enough for the material conditions of the most marginalised. And it also hasn't done enough, even in the confines of the academic space, for us to treat the most marginalised with love and respect as well. So working back to intersectionality, can we find ways to actively stop it being misused as counting our structural oppressions and start from a place of recognising harm, injustice, power and inequality rather than a continuous hyper-engagement with who hurts more. But here I still think we need an engagement with who will continue to feel the brunt of a more humanist approach to marginalisation. So I try my best to see, think and love through just one Fanonian tradition of humanism and I try to think about how we retrieve retrieve the human as Paul Gilroy pointedly reminds us but I will continue to write, remain sceptical as to who is allowed to be human, as Sylvia Winter asks. When we continue to try and make sense and find our way through these turbulent times, we must keep thinking about who is granted human status, who is allowed to feel, who is allowed to be, and who is allowed to be loved. I do try and end most of my talks and podcasts with a bit of hopeful type citation, obviously inspired by Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall reminds us, or reminds us to keep asking at times of madness, political madness, where are the gaps in the terrain of this, of this conjuncture? Where are the moments of hope and optimism? 
So if you do have any questions um, following this, it would be really great if you could follow your questions by sharing any information about scholars or organisers um, who you feel are doing, being, acting in ways um, that is producing and helping, supporting and advocating for others. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Um, really insightful and just acknowledging talk about kind of where we are at the moment and, um, you know, in remembering what we've just gone through, which in a sense, society is just encouraging and pushing us all to just move on and we're not dealing with and reflecting and, and, and taking that time to process. Um, so while she was speaking, that's what I was, that was doing. You gave me some space in the corner at the back. Um, to just process, but I wanted to um, ask if you could expand a little bit from what you said a little bit earlier in your um, in your talk about that whole idea of conflicting dialogue, and then also you to quote you. Um, <laughs> oh God! <laughs> well, um, many of us well-meaning people feel disarmed mm -hmm. um, by the by the white backlash, and you mentioned kind of you know going down to your local mm -hmm. supermarket and everyone. Is, is citing, um, you know, black lives actually do matter. Um, I don't know if you could expand on that a little bit more because I'm thinking what would be an alternative mm. potentially or what would be a different route in society demonstrating support or allyship but without going down the route that has, which I definitely agree with you, mm. it's kind of been, it's been taken now mm -hmm. and as much does. So, yeah. Question, yeah. but statement, but yeah. comment. Yeah, thank um, you. I'll try. Thank you so much, Shadia. That's a really good question. Um, so um, I'll try and keep it uh, hopeful um, and positive. Um, we were, uh, I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast and so does Tisa as well, because it's a really great example of how we can critique the, the mainstream responses to the re-energising of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, how we can critique that whilst also still being optimistic and hopeful. So we were really fortunate to interview Gary Young not long after um, June 2020. And he said that the thing is, I don't doubt that lots of these things, lots of these conversations, lots, lots of these seemingly structural gest gestures are going to be rolled back. But there is something about this moment and movement that cannot be taken away. And he described it as a pollination. Yes, seeds had been planted and these seeds cannot be dug up. I agree with that. There are things amongst our global black diaspora in particular that have been really positive from a, a black sense of self perspective. Um, in terms of how we relate to ourselves as black people since the renewed movement in 2020. What I mean by that is I think that there are a lot of people that have taken more time to understand who they are as black people and how society makes us internalise some really awful things about ourselves and pushing back against that, whether in our micro and intimate social relations. I'd say anecdotally that I think that's really positive. And something that can't be taken away. On the flip side, the thing that I tried to talk about in the article was that I could see why a lot of people were 
frustrated by the gestures around Black Lives Matter. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not talking about black squares here. I'm talking about like people going into work and like having white people come up to you and say like, can you send me some things to read? Can you send me some things to listen to as a black person? Like a lot of people found that really, 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 really difficult. And I feel like part of freedom is recognizing I don't have to teach you how to do this stuff. But also freedom, I think, involves some people that I think I at times can contribute to, but I don't think I can fully give myself to it anymore. The people that are up for responding to the learn me, learn me. What I was trying to talk about there, what I was trying to invoke is the conflicting conversations in knowing that extractative ways of trying to develop one's racial literacy, for example, is not good. But how what else do we have kind of thing so I think that I was trying to basically say and then you have other people within our broad coalitions like you've got they've got to learn somehow like let them like let them find a way like you've got to do it you've got to teach them and I don't agree with them either but it's about recognizing that we're all starting from a certain place like start where you are and having that kind of love and understanding that isn't apathetic that is demonstrable, that does say, okay, if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to teach that person that, what are you doing within the quote-unquote struggle? And the struggle is not just structural. It has to be intimate. It has to be <coughs> relational. And I think that that is what I was trying to, to talk about here. Yeah, does that answer your question? Um, yes, it does. Thank you. And shouting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the misapplication of intersectionality for like women of colour in higher education. Yeah. So... What sort of theories or approaches do you think apply to like women of colour? I think I think intersectionality is brilliant. I think it's a brilliant, a brilliant framework. Like so many people that I look up to and um, read use it. What I'm talking about here, I guess, is intersectionality being used in a way that isn't true to its roots and that isn't centering social justice. That and it becomes a tick box and exercise for. HE providers to, um, yeah, tick a diversity box and where the term and the actual word, so not the, the practice, is used so much. It is, is as Brenna said, um, here, it can be the insurance policy to guard against criticism. So, like, it, me, it, dis, it kind of disarms us when institutions are clearly not moving or reacting in ways that is um, reparative to those that have been most marginalised by the sector. and But saying that they are by simply saying that they're being intersectional. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and then based on that, so then how would you recommend, like, we then approach, you know, higher education institutions being, being like, no, you know, we're ticking up, we're, we're doing this for, you know, disabled, you know, black students. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then how do you continue the dialogue with them? Like, what can we counteract them with if it's not intersectionality for the same we're already doing it? So I guess it's about having long-term and short-term aims that have demonstrable examples of how they can be fulfilled rather than, for example, my institution, Goldsmith, saying they care about staff of colour or they're saying they care about working-class students whilst stripping away, like, the heart of the of the institution. Does that make sense? So it's like what are you doing or what are you doing in the short term? What are you doing in the long term? How are those being, mo- I mean, it is, it is another way of kind of monitoring and tracking. I don't think it's, I think it's an incom- always an incomplete process and something that we have to keep thinking reflexively on. I think the work um, 
myself and Paulette Williams do at Leading Roots, we think about these things all the time, like how we do have to engage, as, as you were saying, but what does that engagement actually look like? What are the end products? And do the end products happen in, sh- in a short term, long term? Like, are we just, if an institution is saying they're operating and using an intersectional framework, let's say, to develop their curriculum, or let's say for their hiring practices, what does that involve? How long is this staying for? Is this just something they're doing now? Because Sainsbury said Black Lives Matter. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if does that answer your question. And I think I think it's a really good question. And I think it's something that we have to re- basically say a combination of, I don't know all of the answers, but I do know this. Mm. And I do know that we can do that. And I do know that we can't do that. Um, something that Paulette is really good at reminding me of saying when we're sort of, when we're running sort of consultancy research council in particular is give us a give us a number of years or give us a number of months give us give us timings of what you actually think you can do in relation to social justice and education like actually giving people set boundaries and times i think so these are practical solutions basically um rather than simply saying well we're, we're being intersectional i do really try to be both political and loving in all of my relationships and that includes work I don't think that the institution or our society in general um is very responsive to that way of being like this isn't this these aren't unique takes here this is this is uh, bell hooks um 101 but um I think that that is part of the struggle isn't it and I think that the work that we have tried to the, the work that we do and have done with leading roots has been has been really cathartic and and brilliant but also I think that and what I was trying to say with surviving society I think this relates to it as well is that when you are that way both trying to not be apathetic and liberal and being loving and political it does open you up to extraction and it does open you up to practices and ways of being that I don't think will help us get to where we need to get to and I think that basically it's easy. I, I think it's really difficult to be loving and political in, in, in the sense that I'm talking about. I think it's really hard to do it because I don't think it is rewarded. And I also think that there is something about this 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 way of being, of engaging in work, but also our relationships. You, you have to be reflexive even in that. It can't be seen. One thing that I think I'm learning personally is that that can't be seen as a utopian way of being because how has it ended up that I'm going through like a massive family bereavement and someone's and I, I'm making clear that I'm not available and someone's asking me for the stats on their podcast because they need it for their leave home application do you know what I mean and it is not but the thing is like I don't take it personally I always try and see how people relate to me in that way as part of wider cultures of what we're trying to work for and navigate collectively it doesn't mean that sometimes it doesn't hurt me but but I'm lucky that I have enough um of an internal reference to see that it's 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 about society um so does being loving in this way in a demonstrable way open you up to um some of these things perhaps yeah I think at times yeah but but I also understand why people run organizations or produce things like surviving society or like leading roots in a way that is clinical and doesn't engage 
in what I'm talking about here. I do get it. I get it. You got we got to survive. Like it's on we're on Plague Island. It's hard <laughs> here. It's hard out here. Like I get it. So I actually I wanted to ask you. Nim, about... you always ask a question. Okay. Always, like, I, remember, I still remember the last question you asked me. It was about how the last question you asked me. Yeah. I was presented was about. Sorry, I was interrupting you. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. It was about. Um, how do we protect ourselves from the far right trying to infiltrate <laughs> our social media? And I was like, Nima, we don't. They keep coming for us. <laughs> no, so this is, yeah, I, I really worry about this and any person of colour who's yeah. in the public eye and we don't know all the shit they're getting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DMs, all, yeah. all the abuse, all the really horrific <coughs> rape jokes, uh, yeah, yeah. rape threats and so on that women especially get yeah uh, women of color dark skin uh women of color um so actually it kind of relates to that in a way <laughs> it's so quick going yeah. by, by, by. Uh, but I'm thinking about uh the backlash mm. um, the white lash the white lash yeah um and, and that's white in the structural sense and intimate sense yeah, yeah and <laughs> the extraction that you talked about is there a kind of there's a lot of people when after kind of the murder of George Floyd and all of these statements around Black Lives Matter, there was still people saying, you know, I'm not racist, I have a black friend or yeah. or relative. Um are there people maybe saying, I'm not racist, I listen to Surviving Society. Um, or there's different ways that your work might be um complicit. Not complicit. I, I wouldn't say that. I would. I would. <laughs> um, how, how do you resist that um, that backlash, the white lash? <laughs> and thinking about Imar's question as well, the way that intersectionality, decolonization, that the way that they've been co-opted mm. and completely emptied of their radical content, um, how? Do you resist that within the structures that you're operating? So, I mean, you know, Joe Rogan's got millions for, for oh, being on Spotify, and Elon Musk might be taking over Twitter, and there's there's those parameters. That yeah, you've got the gateway with. far right people. Um, yeah. So, sorry, it's not a very clear question, but no, I know yeah. what you're saying. Um, so first thing I'd say is that when people say that, yeah, I'm not racist, um, I've got a black friend. The difference in this conjuncture or the white lash is that those people now are saying, no, I am racist. Wow. Is what I, yeah. So you go back, go back to, go back like six years, go to Steve Bannon, like wear your racism as a badge of honor. Like that is main, this mainstreaming of that has been so fundamental, I think, to where we are politically and the people, and then relating these people to, the people that you just mentioned <clears throat> who say, I listen to surviving society, I'm not racist. These people are part of why the the former are emboldened as well. And borrowing here from um, Aurelian Mondon and Aaron Winter, you can't, we can't understand the rise of the far right or the extreme right or the alt right without understanding and paying attention to the continued infiltration of centrism, of liberalism, of apathy. Like, these things are so important to understand together. Um, and so I don't necessarily have an answer for you, but that's my kind of response to that part of your question. The second part of your question is, it's just a, con- it's just a constant, um, uh, what, what, what can I do or what can I contribute to? I've got a fellowship at Oxford, for God's sake. Like, I'm literally in one of the most, like, 
um, elite spaces in the world, what what I can't say that I am um, outside of the cultures and of the structures, the heart of surviving society and the roots of it we're trying to resist. I can't say that I am there anymore. I'm not. But what can I extract from the institution or the structures and redistribute? Um, and my project has always been about a redistribution of knowledge, of knowledge production. I hope that as I go progress further in my career, I can hopefully get money from these places and redistribute them to community organisations. I mean, we have been able to do that with Surviving Society more recently, which has been amazing. But I guess it comes back to the point of how I was trying to respond to Shadia's question and what I tried to write about two years ago is that we all have to recognise in our broad coalitions, we agree on most things, but we all have different roles to play. What is, what is my role within that? My role within that, I think, is, is about being uncertain, being, being comfortable in on my uncertainty, but also trying my best to, within practice, c- create and generate as less harm. Um, and I don't think I'm... Um, Beyond, I don't think I'm beyond that. Um, so yeah, I think that's sort of a mixed up way of talking about reflexivity, but also I'm part of these things. I'm not above it. Just final point on that. I think that there is a rejected purity on the left, which I think is a problem. And that isn't to say that I, I think that the left should engage in apathy or not be militant or anything like that. But it's about going back to what I was saying about our intimate social relations and actually like, if that isn't being nurtured, and I gave the example of your union politics within our, so within how we relate to each other beyond the employer and worker relationship, then there's no way we're getting free. I just don't believe that. I, I really, I really don't believe we will be able to if we carry on treating each other in the way we do. Yeah. Please um, hear this answer with both. Um, love and respect and solidarity but I don't really think I was talking about um decolonization I was talking about intersectionality and I was talking about what you just said there how we deal with your frustration at someone asking you for these lists of um professors of color um I don't I don't really I don't really have an answer to whether it's up to white people or it's up to people of colour or black people to decolonise. Um, I think that I have more questions around um, how we relate to each other. Because I think that the, I, I also think it's one thing that Tisa always says is that it's out there. The answers are out there. It's just about having the will. Um, and I think that the, we all have different roles to play. And I think that if we centre power within that, um, that's a really important thing to do. Like one of the things that's come out, I think, involved involved in the white lash is false equivalences. So, you, so you sort of saying there, well, maybe it's up to, uh, maybe it's not up to um, white people, maybe it's up to us. It's like, so what's the power dynamic there? And it might be that the the power dynamic in relation to one um, white person, ethnic minority, let's say we're thinking about class here, is different. That might be something which we need to consider. But I do. I have much more, I don't have an answer for you on that. I have much more questions, if that makes sense. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm definitely not, I'm not definitely not the best uh, decolonial theorist. I'm definitely not. But with Surviving Society, we try and do decolonial practice. So for example, we have um, 
a lot of guest hosted um, episodes and the way we run it and manage it is very much in opposition to structures that yeah that the institution promotes so there's certain things that we have kind of lines across but that being said I still market the podcast like every week I still like like use it as something that is um or present it as something which you consume um I was just thinking had some ideas while you were announcing Nima's question yeah um, I thought it just kind of sparked some stuff off in my head I suppose to what extent is I mean you've been talking a lot about your own anxieties about complicity yeah, yeah. how your work's being used and how you are situated obviously now you're at the University of Oxford as well and I guess I suppose the question is to what extent is kind of navigating this about accountability to people who aren't in those institutions and how to build those accountability structures um, I mean I really like what you said about everyone having different roles mm-hmm. and it made me think of um, not to get too academic but um, there's research on feminist entanglements with the state, you know, the question is do yeah. you work with the government or are you going to no. co opt it? And yeah, I think that, you know, where where some of the research is landing is that you always need, you know, people who are autonomous with the government because in fact they push the people who are yeah. working with the government in a more radical direction. They yeah. Take accounts. Yeah. And I was thinking is is there something replicated here in, in that need to make sure that you're always being held accountable yeah. to those people who are outside those institutions. Yeah, definitely. And like I was talking about um, the way that I tried to write that piece was thinking about um, my friends and people that I work, that I work, well, I'm very lucky to work with and how we talk about our own complicity, but actually like as hard and as oppressive it can be being a black PhD student, like who am I to say, don't do a PhD, like, who am I to say that? Like, you you have to have some kind of negotiation with um, the fact that people do want to do these things. It's like, okay, what can we do with what we have? What can we do um, with the relationships we have, with the networks we have that can possibly make these things or these engagements with institutions or social life more broadly more manageable? Even though I said work with the government, um, even though I was like, no, that's just me. Like, that's not my role. But it's like one of my good friends' role, like as in that I respect. But but I I do always want to be really careful with how I present this stuff because I'm re- like I do think I think it's because of my mannerisms, I think it's because of the way I speak, I think it's because of some, being a black woman that I can it can sometimes be um I can sometimes be uh it can be seen that I'm being like apathetic or I'm saying being like, kind of like fluffy. I'm not like I try and really within practice be demonstrable in these things and be very practical be very practically minded um and yeah I think that I think that these questions are really really important would do I think that part of our broad coalitions of people that want to make more life more livable livable involves working like or understanding in an intimate way the far right no I do not do I think that we should be having debates with people that that's ideas are mainstreamed by both our government and the media that are harmful no i do not um so yeah i think it's a i think it's a really difficult question um but one that we have to keep asking ourselves uh okay so do we have anyone online who'd like to ask a question we have had a couple of questions in the chat. First, we have uh, Jason said, Chantel, I think you wanted the very best to do it. Thank you so much for all you do in the academy and beyond. The question is, in your opinion, who is allowed to be human? I thought this was a brilliant point you made. Yeah. 
And the next question we have, how do you think love and understanding can help us start to deal with internalised racism? Nice. And the final question is, where is the hope and when will there be change? Oh, listen... Do you know what? The last one is so funny. The last one is not funny, but it's making me laugh because George Afori Addo is our executive producer at Survivor Society when we're having these conversations about hopeful possibilities. George always says to me and Tiso, what date? What date is freedom? I need a date. I need a date. <laughs> and more recently, like, um, and actually through the writing and wisdom of um, Gaminda Bambra, I have sort of had to say to George, gee, it's not in our lifetime, unfortunately. <laughs> towards it we're working towards it um and okay so the question about who is allowed to be human i guess what i'm thinking about there is obviously sylvia winter i'm thinking about um fanon as well but i i want to be resistant of being in meetings or being in conversations where we have to count the multiple axes of oppression and make a calculation on who hurts more because I think we've done that quite a lot and I don't think it's helping a lot of people. Um, I think it's I think it's language. Also, I think it's practice as well. But saying that, I'm very resistant to pe- particularly people on the left that say an, a, uh, a thorough engagement with lived experience is a distraction, a complete distraction. What I mean by that is in the past, when we have done that historically, and this this isn't you can read about this within other um, within writings on community organising and activism more broadly, the people that have bared the brunt of a lot of this stuff are often black women, women of colour, and I don't want to miss that within how we resist thinking about who hurts more. But equally, I don't think um, a universalized um exception of our experience exception of our experience gives us liberation gives us that 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 towards that true liberation either so it's a it's a it's a it's a contested provocation it's something that i'm that i know many people are thinking with but i've become very uncomfortable when people say i don't care about your lived experience we need to think about the structural completely because i think that there are things that happen um, there's, there's categories of the human that some um, women, in particular black women, are not able to access and are not able to feel and are not able to experience um, within our micro and intimate social relations. So I don't, I don't think we, we can forget about that. But equally, I don't think that um, stating who is the most um, marginalised is helping um, the, the collectives and even those that are um, most marginalised. Um, Okay, the question was, how does love and understanding help us deal with internalised issues? So I really, really like um, Stuart Hall's writing on on this stuff. And he didn't write loads on it, but he he said in the early 90s that this this, um, lack of or the inability for us as black people to see the internalised harm, the white supremacy has done to us or does to us is one of the most understudied phenomena of um, race and ethnicity. And I do, I, I think that that is still the case. And I think that um, me and Paulette always talk about some of these things needing to be a private conversation in where we can talk <laughs> explicitly, like as black people about what we do or have, uh, what we do to each other. Um, but I think that 
being loving and understanding of who we are um, as a people is about allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, is about allowing ourselves to be loved. And I think that this process is really, really difficult. Um, but I think it's about, I think it has to come down to the micro, the intimate social relations that we have. And I think that that is a combination of a private conversation between black people as a people, but also us finding ways to reject how we are seen and portrayed in society and reject uh, a homogenization of who we are. Because even though we've had our, our Black Lives Matter um, movement moment, that is con- a continued movement, movement, but let's say the moment has passed for now, um, we still have to we still have to keep doing that work. And I think there is a lot to do on it. And yeah, as, as Stuart Hall said, um, it's, it's, it's a very understudied and under untouched issue because we're always on the back foot, always in survival mode. So it means that we just don't have enough time to heal, process, um, and understand what whiteness has done to us, what white supremacy has done to us. Yeah. And then the final question was the date. Oh, but I started with that, didn't I? When does, what's the date? Did you say what's the date? Was that the question? How do we get there? You can say like the year 3000 and like, no, but it might not even be that, Nima. Listen, like, it's, it's, we're in a white lash on Plague Island. Like, you've got a long way to go. No, honestly. Um, what do I think? That So, thinking about Afrofuturism here, thinking about, um, <laughs> thinking about Afrofuturism here, you have to, in order to get to the future, you have to understand the past. So, thinking about political theory here, thinking about um, sociology as well, understanding the enlightenment understanding how we come to make sense of the world has to include slavery it has to include the impact of that and how we we understand those things and those violences and that global process as something which which informs and is resisted within our future as well um, and i don't i don't know if that makes sense but we're constantly asking what date, when do we get free? And it's not, this is not, this is not my, obviously this is not my work, but um, the way we get free is by imagining the past in order to get to the future, um, rather than just a hyper engagement in what the future could look like. You have to see those things as interlocking and um, in relation to each other. So for example, I need to not be thinking just about the how my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren are going to be experiencing the world. I need to think about what my ancestors, how they experience the world and understanding those two groups of people together. That's, oh, that's what I think. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you, Sonia. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. <laughs> We're back again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.